Well, we're going to read together from God's Word as we find it in the Gospel of Mark and chapter 5. Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. And if you're using one of the church Bibles, then you'll find it on page 1013. Mark chapter 5. We're going to read from verse 21 of Mark chapter 5. At our last guest service, we were looking at the story that is in the middle of this passage, uh, the story of the woman who had been suffering from a discharge of blood for 12 years. But that story comes uh, sandwiched between two parts of another story, uh, and that is the raising of the daughter of Jairus from the dead. And so we want to read uh, this story together now. Mark chapter 5, reading from verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, that's the other side of the Sea of Galilee, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. The great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked round to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside 
and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please turn in God's word again to the gospel of Mark, chapter 5, to that story that we read together uh, on page 1013. Mark, chapter 5, page 1013 in the Church Bible. Our title this evening is Jesus Confronts Death. Jesus Confronts Death. Since chapter 1, right at the beginning of this book of Mark, Mark has been giving us evidence to support what he tells us about Jesus of Nazareth in the very first line of his book, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how his book begins, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the Christ. That's just another word for the Messiah, uh, the Savior of the human race, this deliverer that God has promised for centuries, who was going to come into the world and save human beings from all the horrible consequences of rebelling against God. That's who the Christ is, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And this Messiah is not an ordinary man. He's not a prophet. He's not an angel. Mark tells us in that first line of his book that he is the Son of God himself. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's going to come and exercise all the power and all the authority of God himself. And so right from the word go, Mark is giving us evidence that Jesus really is the Christ and the Son of God. And so he gives us this series of snapshots of Jesus' ministry, showing us that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, We've seen him teaching with authority, with an otherworldly authority that is different from all the human teachers that have come before him, Uh, an authority that just astonishes It flabbergasts everyone who listens to him. We've seen him casting out demons who had possessed human beings. And he doesn't do this in any elaborate ritual. He simply speaks one word of command, and they have to obey him in terror. Even when a man is possessed by more than 6,000 evil spirits, Jesus speaks the word, and they leave him alone. We've seen him forgiving sins, which only God can do. 
We've seen him making a paralyzed man walk. We've seen him showing how he is more powerful than the forces of nature. He gives commands to a windstorm, and instantly the wind and the waves obey him, and it is completely calm. One minute these huge waves are crashing over the boat, and the disciples are terrified that they're going to drown, and in the next instant everything is completely calm. So Mark is giving us these snapshots of the power and the authority of the Son of God. These are not the actions of an ordinary man. This is a demonstration over and over and over again of the awesome power of God himself. And we come this evening to the climax of all of these mighty miracles. Because all these things that Jesus has confronted so far are beyond human control. That's something that Mark has emphasized repeatedly. In the storm on the Sea of Galilee, those experienced sailors among the disciples, they were at their wit's end, weren't they? They were convinced that they were going to drown. They had nothing left to try. And then Jesus steps into the situation and saves them. That man, Legion, who was possessed by 6,000 evil spirits, uh, perhaps you remember how the people had tried to control him. They had tied him up with iron shackles and chains, but it says that he just broke them apart with this superhuman power that the, the demons gave to him. And so it says in chapter 5, verse 4, no one had the strength to subdue him. He was beyond help until Jesus came. The woman with the bleeding that we read about earlier, for 12 years she had spent all her money on doctors. But it says in verse 26 that she was no better, but rather grew worse. Over and over again, Jesus shows that he has power to save when all human resources are exhausted. When people are helpless, Jesus is not helpless. But in this story, has Jesus' power finally been outmatched? How does the Christ, the Son of God, fare against death? And that's our subject tonight. Jesus confronts death. And I want us to look at this story under three simple headings. First of all, the power of Jesus challenged. The power of Jesus challenged. Surely we never feel more helpless than when we stand beside an open grave, when we're confronted by the death of a loved one. Well, that's what we are seeing here in this story. In verse 23, Jairus' little 12-year-old daughter is at the point of death. And then by the time we get to verse 35, we read that she has died. Has Jesus met his match? He's done very well against demons and storms and illness, even serious illness, but 
Is this the point where he throws up his hands and admits defeat? The people around him clearly think so. Verse 35, the people who bring the news to Jairus, they say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? After all, what can a teacher do in the face of death? Is he going to give a lecture? Is he going to give out assignments? What can anyone do in the face of death? The Bible calls death the enemy, and it is a powerful enemy. And we all know that, don't we, from painful experience. Death is a powerful enemy. The book of Proverbs compares death to a greedy monster that is continually devouring its victims, and yet it's never, ever satisfied. It's a thief, the Bible says, that robs its victims of all that they have. Psalm 49 talks about a rich man who had everything in this life, a man who was envied by all who knew him. And yet it says, when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. Because death is a thief. Death obliterates and destroys. It's like an invading army that comes into a land and plunders it and destroys it and leaves it a barren ruin afterwards. Death is a horrible, powerful enemy. And no one is immune to death, are they? Jairus, this man Jairus in the story, is a VIP in the town, a well-respected pillar of the community. He's the ruler of the synagogue. He's wealthy. He's influential. He's moral. He's religious. He is a loving father. And yet all of that counts for nothing. In the face of death, Jairus is not exempt from this tragedy. He can't bargain for the life of his daughter. And this little girl of 12 years old isn't immune from death either. Death is no respecter of age or persons. It comes to everyone sooner or later. We can't escape and that's because death, the Bible says, is the wages of sin. Death is the wages of sin. In other words, it's what we're owed. It's what we earn. That's what wages are, isn't it? It's what we earn by our rebellion against God, by our sin against God. We earn death. We are owed death. Right at the very beginning of the human race, God warned Adam that if he disobeyed the one command that God had given, God gave Adam and Eve this beautiful paradise with everything in it that they could possibly want or need. With just one restriction, there was one thing they weren't allowed to do, 
they weren't allowed to eat from the fruit of the tree that was in the center of the garden. That was the only thing that was forbidden to them. And God warned them, if you eat the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. The devil came along and lied to Adam and Eve. And he said, you won't die. But every funeral and every gravestone exposes the devil's lie. Because we do die. We all die. Because we have all sinned. We have all rebelled against God. And the wages of sin is death. That's why everybody dies. But the Bible tells us that death is even more powerful than that. It's not just that one day our bodies will die. The Bible says that everyone, without exception, is spiritually dead. We're dead on the inside. We're dead in our souls, even though our bodies are still alive. The way that the Bible puts it is that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. In other words, we're incapable of the slightest, smallest spiritual movement. We don't have any love for God, not a flicker of love for God. We have no interest in worshiping Him or serving Him or obeying Him. That's the condition that every human being is born into. We are all spiritually stillborn. And yet death still hasn't finished with us yet. Because if death were the end and our existence was just snuffed out, we were extinguished and that was that, well, that would be bad enough. But the Bible tells us that death, the death of our bodies, is not the end. The Bible says that there is a second death, an eternal death. There is an eternal punishment that awaits every human being because we have rebelled against God. It's not enough that we die. That's not enough of a punishment for rebelling against God. Rebelling against God is an infinite crime, and so it requires, it demands, an infinite punishment. And so the Bible says that it is appointed to man once to die, and after that, the judgment. There is something that comes after that, after the death of our bodies. Death is an enemy. It is the most terrible enemy. Can a carpenter from Nazareth do anything about it? And the answer to that question is yes, he can. If he is who Mark says he is, surely if anyone can deal with death, it is the Son of God. It is the Christ. The question is, can he? Will he? The power of Jesus challenged. That brings us then, secondly, to think about the power of Jesus displayed. The power of Jesus displayed. Because when the devastating news comes 
of his daughter's death, of Jairus' daughter's death, Jesus does not say to Jairus, I'm so sorry. This is just awful. If only I hadn't been delayed. If only you'd come to me sooner. Perhaps then, then I might have been able to do something to help. He doesn't say that. He doesn't throw up his hands and turn and go home. Far from it. Look at what he says. He says to Jairus in verse 36, Do not fear, only believe. Now, you need to be very, very sure of yourself, don't you, to say that to a father who has just lost his daughter. And then listen to what Jesus says when they arrive at the house. He tells the mourners, the child is not dead, but sleeping. In verse 39. Now, we know that the child is dead. So why does Jesus say that the child is not dead, but sleeping. Well, Jesus knows that he's going to raise her from death. And so for this little girl, death is like a little nap. For Jesus, raising this child from the dead is going to be no harder at all than it would be for Jairus to go into her room in the morning and rouse her from sleep. In fact, that's exactly how he does raise her. Look at what he says in verse 41. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. That's exactly what a mother or father would do in the morning to wake their child up. Taking her by the hand, stroking her hand, and saying, up you get, we lamb. In fact, the word Talitha comes from the Aramaic word for lamb, for little lamb. Time to get up, we pet. That's what you do in the morning when you're waking your child. And that's what raising someone from the dead is for Jesus. There's a beautiful, tender, touching simplicity and ease about it. That's how easily the power of God overcomes death itself. The power of Jesus displayed. And yet even more wonderfully than that, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is able to free us from the full, hideous range of death's destructive power, the whole horrible package that we just thought about a few minutes ago. Not just physical death, but spiritual death as well. We're dead in our sins. We're not able to move a muscle, spiritually speaking, to obey God and to love God. We have no interest in God whatsoever. He has no relevance, no meaning to our lives. We don't pray to Him. We don't try to do what He says. We never ask Him for guidance about anything. We live as though God simply doesn't matter. We're spiritually dead. And then one day Jesus Christ comes to you or to me and says, as it were, Talitha kumi, little girl, little boy, man, woman, 
I say to you, arise. And maybe some of us can remember the very moment that that happened. Didn't understand what was happening at the time necessarily, but looking back, you know exactly what was going on. I can remember that feeling. I can remember sitting. I remember where I was sitting. I don't remember when it was exactly, but I know where I was when it happened. It was in classroom BG3 uh, in my high school at a scripture union meeting at lunchtime when someone was explaining the gospel. Here is why Jesus died on the cross. And I had thought for years that I understood why Jesus died on the cross. But at that moment, it just all made sense. It was as if the Holy Spirit had come into my heart and my head and turned on the lights. And suddenly I realized this, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is why Jesus died. This is what I need to do in order to have eternal life. That was Jesus coming into my life and saying, Talitha kumi. And suddenly it's as if uh, your heart, your spiritual heart begins to beat for the first time and the blood flows and suddenly you're, you're filled with love for God and you're able to believe and trust Jesus Christ. Suddenly your eyes are opened and you can see yourself as you really are, as a guilty rebel against God who deserves nothing but eternal punishment for daring to live as though God doesn't matter. Suddenly you, you, you're, you're able to open your mouth and you're able to cry to God for mercy and for forgiveness. And you're able to praise God and to worship Him as God. Because Jesus has come and raised you from the dead spiritually so that you're not dead in trespasses and sins any longer, but you're alive to God in righteousness. He's able to save us from spiritual death. And then, most amazingly of all, Jesus is able to save us from eternal death. He's able to save us from the second death. Because on the cross, Jesus died. The Son of God, the Lord of life, the one who was able to raise the dead like this little girl here, he himself on the cross submitted to the power of death. And he did it deliberately. He did it because he was taking the punishment that we deserve for our sin. He was accepting the wages of sin that ought to have been paid to you and to me. But he went to the cross and he took those wages instead of us. He experienced physical death. He did die. His heart stopped beating. His blood stopped flowing. He stopped breathing. But far, far worse than that, infinitely worse than that, he bore the wrath of God while he hung on the cross. He was being punished for all the sins of every single person who would ever put their trust in him to be their Savior. He went through hell for every single one of his people. All our eternities in hell were condensed down into those three hours on the cross. Only Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is able to do this. He's the only one who has ever lived who can defeat death. 
and he proved that he had conquered death when three days later he rose to life on the third day. The power of Jesus displayed. Jesus confronts death and he destroys it. The power of Jesus challenged by death. The power of Jesus displayed in his victory over death. And then lastly, the power of Jesus received. The power of Jesus received. And we need to think about this, don't we? Because we need to know how we get this victory over death that Jesus won. What do we need to do? Do we need to live a good life? And then Jesus will give us this victory over death. Do we need to attend church every week? Do we need to read the Bible and pray? What do we need to do? How do we get this infinite power of Jesus over death? How do we benefit from it? Well, Jesus is very clear with Jairus, isn't he? What did Jairus have to do? Jesus says to him, only believe. Verse 36. Only believe. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only thing that's needed. That's all Jairus has to do. He doesn't need to pledge a new wing for the synagogue. He doesn't need to, to get out his checkbook and, and write an extra large extravagant donation to synagogue funds. Jesus says, only believe. Now Jairus has already put his faith in Jesus. That's why he came to Jesus in the first place. His little daughter is at the point of death. What does he do? He goes and seeks out this carpenter from Nazareth. Why? Because he believes that Jesus is able to help. He's heard his teaching in the synagogue. He's seen some of the miracles, perhaps. He's seen how Jesus has been able to cure uh, incurable diseases. He's heard about other miracles. He believes that Jesus can save his daughter, and that's why he goes looking for him. Why else would you go to a carpenter when your daughter's at the point of death? He's not going to Jesus to ask him to make a coffin for his daughter. He's asking Jesus for a cure. And we see his faith in the way that he comes so humbly to Jesus and begs for his help. In verse 22, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and implored him. He begged him earnestly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. That's strange behavior for a synagogue ruler to a carpenter from the back of beyond. In the eyes of the world, Jairus is the, the bigwig. He is the VIP. And Jesus is a nobody. But Jairus doesn't believe that. Jairus believes that there is more to Jesus than meets the eye. And so he comes and he falls down before him and he begs him to do the impossible. He already has faith 
in Jesus. And so Jesus exhorts him to keep on believing. That's literally what he says there in verse 36. Do not fear, just keep on believing. Jesus says that's all you need to do if you're going to experience the power of God in Jesus Christ. Keep trusting in me. Believe that I am able and willing to save your daughter, even from death. There's nothing else that Jairus can do. There's nothing else that Jairus needs to do. He just needs to trust Jesus to do it all. And that is the essence of faith. That's what faith looks like. It's realizing I can't save myself. I can't save my daughter. I can't overcome death. But you can, Lord. And so I'm going to put my trust in you to do all that's needed. And friends, that's still what Jesus says to you and to me. What was true then for Jairus is true for us today. This is how we get the power of God in Jesus Christ to save us from death. This is not just for 2,000 years ago. This is for anyone who will believe. Jesus says to you this evening, only believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? It doesn't just mean believing that he exists. The devil believes that Jesus exists. It means believing everything that Jesus says about you. It means believing that you really are guilty before God because you've taken the life that he has given you and you've lived it the way that you want to live it rather than the way that he commands. That's believing in Jesus. Believing everything that he says about you. It means believing everything that he says about God. It means believing that in staggering mercy and grace, God sent Jesus, his Son, to save human beings from death. Believing in Jesus means believing what he says about God. But above all, believing in Jesus means putting your trust in him and Him alone to save you from death, to save you from God's judgment. Believing in Jesus means crying out to Jesus for mercy because He has lived and died in our place. And when we do that, we share His victory over death in the end. Only believe. That's all you have to do. Put your trust in Jesus Christ and He will save you. He has promised that He will save you. Can you imagine the celebrations that there would be all over the world if cancer were cured tomorrow? A a cure for every single form of cancer that is 100% effective, doesn't matter how advanced the cancer has become, how how far it has spread in your body, if you just take this pill, 
if you have this injection, you will be completely cured and you will never get cancer again. Can you imagine? It would be front page news of every single newspaper all over the world. There would be celebrations and public holidays and rejoicing for weeks and months and years to come. And yet here we have even better news than that. Death itself has been defeated. What could be more relevant? What could be more joyful? What could be more wonderful than that? That is exactly what we see here in this story. As the Apostle John puts it in his gospel, in John 3 verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, not die, but have eternal life. And that is what the Lord Jesus Christ is holding out to you this very night. As you hear this message again, he is offering you eternal life instead of death. All you have to do is only believe. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for how these words that we have sung can be a description for each one of us of our uh, deliverance from death uh, to life. For the cords of death completely surrounded us. The terrors of the grave took hold of each one of us. Before we became Christians, O oh God, this was our position before you, being dragged down further and further towards everlasting death in hell. We thank you that you, in your mercy and grace, sent your Son into this world to rescue us from death in all of its forms, to rescue us from spiritual death, to rescue us from eternal death, and we thank you, Lord God, that one day we will be raised from the dead and given new bodies just as he was, that he will save us from physical death as well. And Lord, we do want to pray very especially for those who may be here who have not yet experienced this deliverance from death, for those who are known to us in our families and among our friends, who are still dead in their trespasses and sins and heading towards uh, the second death, we pray, Lord God, that you would have mercy upon them and that this very night you would stop them in their tracks, that you would come and you would say to them, as you did to so many of us, Talitha Kumi, I say to you, arise. We pray, Lord God, that you would give this miracle, that you would do this awesome act of power and that you would raise from spiritual death and from eternal death those whom the cords of death are surrounding this very night. Lord God we rejoice that you are so mighty and powerful, far more powerful even than the last enemy of death. We pray that you would show that power and glorify yourself this very night 
by delivering men and women, young people and children from the power of death. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.